No, I say I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football, everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I would get a taxi back to Manchester. The only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking mentality giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country. With the return of schools this week, you can be sure there's kids all over the country firing out Irish essays about their summer holidays with plenty of good old Gatubbins thrown in. Well, last week we had an almighty Gatubbin in the football world when on Friday afternoon Cristiano Ronaldo became a Manchester United player out of nowhere when it looked all but certain that he was on his way to Manchester City. Hello and welcome to this week's Treat the Bag podcast. Joining me as per usual is Phil Green and Enda Higgins. How are you lads? How are we doing? How are things lads? So a wild weekend of football and transfer activity, none bigger than Robbie Brady's a presumed move to Gaziantep FK of Turkey. But putting that to one side for a second, I think to get our heads around Ronaldo's seismic move back to Old Trafford after over 10 years on from his departure, we'll be talking to journalist Daniel Harris about what this all means for United and Ronaldo. That's coming up a little later on in part two. We'll also take a quick look at Ireland's international week ahead of three huge games against Portugal, Azerbaijan and Serbia. On the Premier League front, Liverpool held 1-1 to the almighty pragmatism of Tuchel's 10 men, Chelsea, after Kai Havertz put the Blues 1-0 up with an absolutely beautiful lofted header from a corner. Mo Salah equalised from the spot after Rhys James handled the ball off the line and got himself sent off for his troubles. Chelsea regrouped then at half-time and Tuchel takes off both Kante and Havertz to plug the, to plug the holes in the defence and... Um, I think for Liverpool fans, it definitely worked out frustratingly well for Chelsea. Phil, what did you take away from that one? I think probably more than anything uh, that these are two teams that will more than likely feature heavily in the title race. Um, I think there was an awful lot of justified hype about Chelsea uh, coming off the back, obviously, of winning the Champions League last year, uh, adding a sharp pointy end to their team in Lukaku and how impressive they looked in the first couple of games. This was obviously a test of their credentials. It was also a test of Liverpool's credentials, uh, a team who theoretically is the same team that won the league 18 months ago, or sorry, two, well, two seasons ago, um, minus Genie Wijnaldum. Um, were they going to be as good as they had been? I think the first half was a really engaging, entertaining contest. I think it was properly blood and guts it didn't feel like the third game of the season I think was a good marker for where both sides could end up going uh, like you said with the second half uh, Tuchel absolutely shut it down expertly and, and Chelsea will be you saw it, but how, how happy they were when they celebrated at the end I think this could be a point for Liverpool to look back on that they mightn't be too disappointed with unambiguously if you play 45 minutes against 10 men at home no matter who it is you do want to win the game but I think when all is said and done, kind of by even by Christmas time, I think you'll see that this Chelsea team probably won't lose many games. And I think um, a point mm. against them, especially having been 1 0 down, probably won't turn out to be the worst result in the world. 
Um, I think I, I was saying to, to to friends before the game um, that we, we were likely going to learn more about Chelsea than we were about Liverpool just because Liverpool have been on around the block a little bit this side has um, we were likely going to learn more about Chelsea uh, I think Chelsea definitely showed that they're they're here they're up for the fight they're in it for the long haul uh, but I think Liverpool showed enough mm. that you could say they're likely going to be the same as well and uh, on the attacking front for Liverpool obviously um, I mean it does feel like they're a player too short and if you look at the options off the bench um, against Chelsea Jota obviously came on early enough for Firmino no sign of Minamino, no sign of Chamberlain. Um, uh, Divock Origi didn't even make the bench and it looks like um, Liverpool will be happy to see, see the back of him if at all possible. I mean, we, we have a question in from from Tom Brown on Twitter. Have Liverpool done enough in the transfer window to stay in contention for the title? I think if there was anything to take away from that Chelsea game is that they do feel short. It's somewhere in attack to you know mix things up and... Uh, with, with the players that they have to spring from the bench um, the fact that they're not even using them uh, doesn't really bode well for, for over the course of a, of, of a title challenging season Yeah, when you think of Klopp and Liverpool at their best certainly in the past two or three seasons chasing a game like that against 10 men he more than likely would have gone to a 4-2-3-1 bring on Shaqiri either as kind of the number 10 or the winger he didn't have that option obviously once um Firmino went off and Jota had to come on and now with Shaqiri gone. So unless he tries to turn either Elliot or Chamberlain, who did, in fairness, start his career as kind of more of a wide forward than the midfielder he is now, into one of those players, I think there's a huge glaring issue there for Liverpool. Um, I was very concerned that they didn't replace Wijnaldum, obviously, earlier um, in the summer. Uh, but with Elliot coming back, I could kind of understand it. And with Henderson being fit again and with Milner... And Thiago still hasn't really featured too much um, positively for Liverpool and his cameo wasn't really mind-blowing at the weekend either. But you would think that there still is a lot more to come from him. But it's really that extra forward option. Um, and we actually flagged this in the first show of the season when mm. you know we talked about his impact in the semi-final against Barcelona. And you think back to him coming on against United a couple of years ago to finish Mourinho off. Just little impacts like that that you know even Shaqiri mightn't have been an overall success week in, week out for Liverpool, but he certainly had very, very important moments for the team and was a really one of the best, in my mind, backup options you could have in the Premier League when you consider um, uh, the backup options some other teams have. And then Klopp did have this great way of getting performances out of Origi. I think he, he, <laughs> he turned him into a winger there for a while and he was producing incredible stuff and seemed to come up with important goals in that Champions League run and, and that seems to have faded now so he went from basically having five or six guys who he could almost trust with his life across that front three to now really having four players three of who are all in their late 20s now um, and Jota who's still giving them that spark when he plays and I was surprised he didn't actually start at the weekend but you'd have to be really concerned with that lack of depth across the front three, especially when you consider the options Chelsea now have, bringing in Saul and Ziyech hasn't been playing yet, bringing in Lukaku. United have five or six options across the front three. City, even though they don't have a number nine, still have abundance of talent across those positions as well. And then you look at Liverpool and that's where they're extremely light. You know, centre-backs now fixed again, really. We haven't seen Kanata yet. Midfield is fine. Um, but across that front three, and especially with Firmino, Salah and Mane 
probably not having the pace and energy that they did have kind of 18, two years ago, 18 months, two years ago. That for me was probably the most concerning issue for Liverpool when the game was there to be won for them. And as well as Chelsea did do shutting them down, Liverpool were a bit toothless in attack. Um, and Klopp, at his best, definitely would have moved to that front four. Um, but he just didn't have that option uh, on Sunday. And I think that was the most damaging thing for Liverpool. Phil, Liverpool's deadline day at the at the time of recording anyway, unless they have anything up, up their sleeve in the next two or three hours, which I, I highly doubt. But um, it's been made up of new deals for Jordan Henderson and Nat Phillips. Um, so it doesn't look like they have strengthened in an attack. Um, I mean, on Saturday, I was particularly kind of worried about Sadio Mane. I mean, it, it's an issue that we've flagged on the podcast in the past has been Mane's form. Um, whereas Salah has kind of maintained his scoring record and um, he does kind of produce more often than not. Manny tends to struggle. And I mean, in this type of game, he does show a lot of the attributes that, you know, are a little bit frustrating, you know, getting the ball, being a little bit hesitant, hesitant with it. Um, I mean, losing it easily. And it feels like if, if Liverpool did need to, say, at least compare a title challenge with City, and Chelsea, considering their wealth of attacking options, that to me it seemed like they did need someone who could come in for Manny and uh, um, maybe not produce some of the goods that he has in the past, but at least go some bit to, to replacing him and, and being sort of a rotation there in the, in the left-hand side. Yeah, I, I agree. I think when you're looking um, at how they could strengthen, I think that left-hand side is an obvious one. I think they're kind of in a bind in that, like you said, you're, you you can't necessarily come in and just sign someone to replace Sadio Mane, even though he's in a dip in form. Um, he's still, you know, I don't know, is he one of the 15 best attacking players in the league? I don't know if you've list him out where he falls. But what I'm trying to get at is he's towards the top end of attacking talent in the league. And those sort of players don't necessarily come cheap. Uh, what the profile you're looking at, I suppose, is somebody like Ajata, who's happy enough to come in and not play a load of minutes. Um, but getting the profile of that is hard as well. Um, like Ender was saying, Shakiri probably 12 months, 18 months ago, was turning in these kind of useful cameos off the bench to give them something different. Origi, again, like Ender said, even further back, turned in kind of a really <laughs> incredible six or nine months of uh, of options off the bench. Um, I think the bind that Liverpool are in, you see it even by the type of names that they've been linked to, however unlikely, as, as forwards in like, Mikael Damsgaard and okay not exactly a, a, a forward but Dwight McNeil is that it's not like Mbappe or Haaland uh, it's it's not even the next rung down it's two or three or four rungs down uh, because I think there is an acknowledgement now uh, and I don't think this is a good thing but I think that those front four and Jod has inserted himself into the conversation but those front four are pretty hard to dislodge as the first choice it's going to be three of those four if the Champions League final was in the morning and so to try and convince somebody of requisite quality to come in and accept a rotation is is a difficult thing to do, I think. Mm. And I think that is how they've ended up in this position where they are light now. And like we haven't even talked about AFCON in a couple of months and Mane and Salah are gone. And I genuinely at this stage don't know who's going to play <laughs> up front like alongside Firmino and Jota. I, do, I actually don't know who that person <laughs> is. Like, is it Divock? I mean, it, Liverpool have made it very well known that they were very willing to let him go if anyone paid them anywhere near what they were will, what they wanted. And um, so, 
like I, I actually don't know who's going to play up front when the two lads go to AFCON. Um, so like they are definitely light in that regard. I was probably less concerned about it um, coming into the summer because I thought that Elliot was going to pick up those those uh, kind of spare minutes, albeit from the still from the mm. the right hand side. And um, now it looks like he's going to be picking up minutes in midfield instead, and I, and I don't think there's any kind of complaints about that in terms of he's had a relatively good start. Uh, but it's become more of a pressing concern when you just look at that depth chart. Um, Saturday, while worrying, I think you're going to find that a lot of sides are going to struggle to break down this Chelsea side. They might For sure, might yeah. be the best defensive side this side of Cholo Simeone's Atletico. Um, mm. like they're just so well drilled and they were so happy to sit into that five and just mm. soak it up. Um, so I, like Saturday in and of itself, while frustrating, probably didn't doesn't worry me just as much as like looking to January and seeing that like the source of most of your goals and Sadio Mane are disappearing over the horizon for a month and it's Firmino and Jota and fucking who? Kane Gordon? Like, I, I don't know. I literally don't know who's going to play in that front three, which is something you haven't been able to really think of for Liverpool for a long time. You know, you've known uh, under Klopp it's been the three lads. Then last season, Jota inserted himself into the conversation, but it's still four, It's still three from four. Um, it's, just, it's hard to see now. And like you said, I mean, they could prove us all wrong in the whatever four hours were left while we're recording now, but... It really doesn't look like it. I wouldn't bet um, on it. <laughs> no, I definitely wouldn't. And like, listen, for, I would say, 12 sides in the division, that's not going to be much of a problem. Like, they already did Burnley, and like, Burnley are theoretically one of these sides that they're gonna, they should struggle against if they're struggling to create, but they didn't. They, they did mm. them pretty comfortably. So I think for 11 or 12 sides, that's going to be fine. But in a year where there's four realistic title contenders... Uh, and a really strong kind of second tier uh, of you know people pushing for Europa and maybe Champions League places. I think they are going to need a sharper end in in some instances. And it, even the idea of freshening it up that's just not there mm-hmm. is a small bit of a concern. And maybe it's the first time under Klopp that you've felt that they're missing that kind of sharp edge, which they always felt like they had. Are you concerned at all about the? impending departure of Michael Edwards that has been reported over the past couple of days. I mean, it must be frustrating for him. Um, I mean, not to be able to dive into the transfer market as often as he has over the past year or two. But um, I mean, like we, we've discussed it amongst ourselves, like these types of roles do tend to have a short shelf life. Um, do you anticipate any kind of major upheaval or, or huge changing of the guard with, with his uh, move if he does leave? Yeah, I, I don't think it can be painted as anything else other than a disappointment uh, for Liverpool because of how successful he's been and what a successful part of this kind of era under kind of well, the last, say, five years since he actually assumed the role proper. Um, or I think it's only actually four since he kind of came in officially as, as Sporting or Technical Director. Um, he, he has been credited. Like, it's gone full circle now. At the start, fair enough, he wasn't maybe talked about so much, but now he's one of those, he's so underrated, he's now actually properly rated fellas. You know those players where they always get talked about being underrated until the point where actually they're probably properly rated. Edwards is definitely there now. He gets the credit. Um, he is obviously a figurehead of a much bigger machine. And, you know, we have all these science, these like rocket scientists Liverpool apparently poached from NASA and have stopped, you know, us getting to Mars and all that sort of stuff by instead getting them to sign Lazar Markovic and Divock Origi. But um, 
he's so he is a figurehead for a bigger operation and you know there's been loads of uh, it's funny now actually there was a really positive piece about julian ward who is his deputy that came out last week before this news actually broke so maybe it was a little bit of spinning uh ahead of time to say actually this guy is actually really good don't worry about it ahead of this michael edwards news coming and i think it has to be a concern because he's been given so much credit so if you give a man that much credit and then he leaves you have to say it's a negative um and you know remains to be seen how they how they react to it you'd hope that the machine is big enough and well oiled enough that it will work it's hard to know um but it will be a loss it'll be interesting to see where he goes next if he will go somewhere that'll just let him spend loads of money and he gets to enjoy himself (laughs) or maybe he really enjoys the challenge of picking out ben davis for two and a half million and you know, selling them for whatever they're going to end up selling them for. I don't know. Maybe that's what he likes. Maybe when he goes on to football manager, he picks like the lowest budget and sees what he can do. Um, but I think, I think until we see otherwise, we have to assume it's going to hit Liverpool a little bit. In the, on the United front, um, we'll be getting into the whole Ronaldo madness a little bit later on with Daniel. But on Sunday um, against Wolves, and I mean, it was very much Mason Greenwood to the rescue there, but um, firstly, how on earth did Wolves not get a result? And secondly, um, and I'm not sure if it's uh, a newfound thirst for blood with these with these new uh, rules or um, if I've been poisoned somehow by some United voodoo, but am I alone in thinking that that tackle, that pub tackle on Ruben Neves wasn't a foul under the new parameters? Yeah, well, for like the match was an absolute pig, it has to be said. An absolutely brutal Sunday affair but um when I first saw it in real time I kind of had the Jamie Carragher initial reaction which was there's not really much contact there never sees the ball go away goes down United play on but the more you see it and especially in this kind of VR era of everything being slowed down it's the one tackle more than anything that they're trying to remove from the game, which is studs up over the ball, which when you slow it down, even though I hate kind of analyzing tackles just as a freeze frame, you have to say it, it shouldn't have been allowed, even though there there were, actually wasn't very little contact. I think Pogba, when he does tackle, ironically, does do it in a, in a quite a dangerous fashion. He does the same thing when he tries to protect the ball. He puts his studs up, he goes over the ball, and then he tries to use his body to kind of push a player out of the way. But by the time that happens he's already gone through on them um so i just felt i was really really surprised that the goal stood um as much as i was desperate for it to stand the more i saw it on the kind of third four three play and then to not even get the referee to to go over and look at the screen um you know like you had to do for the jack attack or like you had to do for the reese james handball both which could have looked better in real time um then sort of freeze frame or slow motion replays. I was really surprised it stood because it's it's the, the type of thing they're just trying to re- remove completely from the game. Mm-hmm. That being said, <laughs> the personnel on Sky who had the most issues with it <laughs> did. I, w- I wonder who you're referring to. <laughs> um, you know, like don't make me bring up him bloody chopping somebody in half back in the eighties and pointing at his sock being torn or something. You know, but uh, that was a bit ironic for me. Uh, considering you know the issues they have with Pogba basically not being tough enough or getting stuck in enough. Um, but blocking all that out, I was really, really surprised that the goal stood. And I think, you know, they have brought in this kind of 
letting the game flow more type of feel early on in the season. And I think it's worked well overall. For example, I don't think the Fernandez incident was a foul uh, at Southampton. Um, some people were referring to uh, Ruben Neves with kind of studs up on Fernandez in the box earlier in the game uh, on Sunday. But, uh, you know, again, I didn't see too much issues with it. it was, I just saw two guys going for the ball. But with the Pogba one, he maybe gets a fraction of a stud on the ball and he gets a bit more on Neves and usually it's tough to argue that it should have stood um, as much as I would have liked <laughs> to argue. Otherwise, I, I think any grievance that the Wolves guys had, and we saw all over their Instagram that they had a lot of issues with it standing. <laughs> um, I think it's fair enough. It, it, if it was against me, for example, which is why I try to judge how I try to judge every situation, um, I wouldn't have wanted to stood. So um, I was really surprised. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the game, then, I mean, Adama had Traore had the had the freedom of the United defence there for for large parts of it. I mean, um, it it did feel like it was kind of one way traffic for most of the game. Um, and I mean, it's three one nil losses now for Bruno Lage in a row, uh, which d- doesn't really bode well for Wolves. And I mean, Raúl Jiménez obviously coming off that horrific head injury is probably still lacking a little bit of confidence um, that he might otherwise, you know, take a chance or two. Um, to get going um, at all but I mean were you concerned at all with the United performance particularly that Fred and Pogba pivot in the middle which uh, which Wolves seem to pick apart fairly fairly easily Certainly concerned with the first half I thought United and Fred in particular were just a complete abomination um, did improve in the second half in fairness and I thought Pogba settled far more in the pivot in the second half and played how you hoped he would in a pivot which is just first time passes into the front three Sancho really struggled, um, but you know I'm not overly concerned that that's going to be an issue going forward for United. So it was just a, one of those type of early season ugly performances that you just hope for your life that you get out of alive. I think what United needed before the season started was an informed goalkeeper, which now De Gea looks like again. Even the moment in the second half where he, he charged from the box, I think 30 or 40 yards, and went into sweeper-keeper mode, which we've not seen him do in his decade at United um, which Henderson does do very well so that was kind of interesting tactically um, incredible double save the Wambasaka clearance off the line but what United really needed was uh, Mason Greenwood elevating his game which he has done uh, and an informed goalkeeper um, and, and the only thing they needed apart from those was a number six which unfortunately they don't have now so Ollie's going to have to find ways around you know getting the ball from defence to the front three as quick as possible, or even move to a front four, um, which we basically have already, really, with Fernandez playing 10. But uh, it was an extremely concerning first-half performance, but it wasn't overly surprising considering, you know, with McTominay injured, I think he's somebody who does make United play better when you look at his Leeds performance, for example, how well he pressed, he moved the ball really well, um, linked up with the front line very well. Uh, Fred doesn't have the same amount of energy, care on the ball, doesn't really have anything United need from somebody in a pivot. Um, and I'd imagine going forward uh, next year, for example, um, he won't have to worry about that. Uh, so I just think Ollie needs to be a bit clever in how he tries to manage mm. such a talented front line. Um, Varane looked really, really sharp, apart from uh, the error from the corner in which Wolves almost scored, but I think it was almost a flawless debut apart from that. Wan-Bissaka bailed us out as well, which is 
what he needs to do defensively to justify his his place in the team. So certain things worked, but it's you know those who criticise Ali would have looked at Sunday and said it was all individual talent getting United out of jail, which is not really what we hope to see from United going forward. We're looking for something now a bit more functional um, and a and a style of play that's reusable whether it's home or away. So we're still searching for that. Uh, but hopefully we'll find it this season. In defence of Varane there, I think Roman Sice is one of the most effective um, players in attacking corners or set pieces that I've seen. I mean, he he's always seems yeah. to get on the end of it. He's, he's an absolute bully. Um, so, you know, I think Varane will catch up to speed. And otherwise, I think he was he was pretty... Uh, pretty uh, to. Royals Rice, um, like Van Dyke um, in his day. Yeah, somebody called um, him a, a, a ballet dancer in a mosh pit, I think somebody called him on Twitter, <laughs> which I think described it, described it pretty well. Yeah, I think so. Quickly, lads, on Arsenal and City, I mean, a 5-0 hammering on Saturday afternoon um, leaves Arteta very much in a precarious position going into the international break. I mean, it was just a calamitous game from Arsenal in every department, Um with the standard red card for, for Granite Jacket thrown in. I mean, statistically, it's one of the worst ever. Um, it doesn't make for pretty reading for anyone, really. Um, and, you know, for the XG fans, I think Arsenal have created the least XG and conceded the most uh, over the course of the season so far. Um, I think the game against City was their least amount of possession and their least amount of passes ever. Um, I mean, an utterly disaster opening three games um, that has supposedly left them um, worse across all range of statistics than Derby County back in 07-08, which I think just, just kind of <laughs> summarises it up for Arteta at the minute. I mean, Phil, I mean, first of all, when I saw the lineup and I saw Sayed Kalasnech, Rob Holding, Callum Chambers, I mean, it, it did feel like it was going to be an inevitable win, comfortable win for City. Um, and I don't think you could have, I think you could have put the house on it really. It just, it just felt like... It was writing that was on the wall for Arsenal in that game, and and it just looks so so bad at the moment in every department. I mean, it is going to be difficult. I know they have um, a more reasonable run of games coming up after this one, but it does feel like uh, it'll take something for for Arteta to be able to turn the ship around at this point. A hundred percent, and like you say, they had a tough start, and that means that like by by design, they're going to have an easier run coming up. But the problem is how badly they've leaned into this bad start. And it's why the run of fixtures actually do matter. I know everyone plays everyone twice, and that's true and fair enough to an extent. But like to turn up like they have in the two games against City and Chelsea, and fair enough, their games they regularly lose. But the way they have lost them on top of the Brentford loss and just the general sense of malaise around the club, I mean, as much as the three centre halves, which which were hilarious, I mean, like each they nearly got worse as you read the team sheet down. You're like, oh god, that's not great. Oh, that's definitely not great. That's even fucking worse. Was that Jacka was the only in any way defensive midfielder that he started with? I mean, like it was in, in ways it was a real tribute. I know Andy, you like to call him Pep Junior. It was a real tribute to to Guardiola in that he played one defensive midfielder. And let kind of vibes look after the rest. And Jacka, like Julie, did a Jacka Gonzalez sent off. Um, what I really like to think about the performance was Arsenal actually played pretty well for the first five or six minutes, and then conceded a goal nearly straight away. So it was very, very Arsenal. It was like the full Arsenal bingo card of um, of like a, an initial promising 
uplift in performance and then just complete capitulation. Um, like there just seems like there's something wrong and something rotten in the state of Denmark at the minute. You see the way Bellerin taking a pay cut to get out of the club to go to Betis, William get cancelling his contract to leave again for no money, and <laughs> um, Maitland Niles being a move like everyone wanted to buy him. They blocked it, sent him to train away from the first team. So it's like, no, we're not selling you on. You're also not mm. going to play you. Like, and now, okay, now they've sorted it out and he's staying there till January or whatever. But like, it just seems like a rabble. Everything about it seems terrible. That, that sub goalkeeper from Iceland, he's gone on loan to some club I've never heard of. He's on, he's in contract there longer to Arsenal than Harry Kane is to fucking Spurs. Like, the whole thing is a mess. And I like, I just, it feels a long way for them to climb up and climb out of it. Um, and like, regardless of, of who is coming next, I think whoever they're playing would fancy having a cut off this Arsenal at the minute, uh, just because of how low down their confidence is, because of how disorganised they are, because of how much of a soft touch they seem. Uh, I don't think there's going to be many sides in the division who'd be necessarily fearful. And that's not to say that they're going to stay at the bottom of the league and get relegated. But I don't think that they have any sort of aura around them um, of any sort of big club at the minute. They feel very vulnerable uh, and it, it's it's a big task ahead of Arteta now and you wonder if is he actually going to be given the time to fix it yeah the Amazon filmmakers must be <laughs> delighted you know from going from such a boring city to then bit of drama at Spurs with Jose to now I mean if they don't produce an absolute belter of a documentary from the last three weeks then they should just phone it in because there's so much material to work with apparently there was a you know Malin Niles Arteta reunion of love this afternoon, which is impossible to believe. You know, it, um, somebody tweeted out the picture of uh, Danny Rose and Mourinho in their office just talking about how shitty he is. You know what I mean? Uh, and it just reminded me of that. So, like, it's just unimaginable carnage at Arsenal. I think Phil has summed it up better than I can, but. You know, there are ways to lose football matches and Arsenal just seem to lose them the wrong way all the time. And, you know, you looked at their transfers and even the ones they've done today, you know, I I think the Bologna right back, you know, has looked pretty good in Syria the last few seasons. And then Cave goes on Sky Sports News just before our podcast here and says Arsenal were the only Premier League club who, who their agent <laughs> would speak to, you know what I mean? And it's just like levels of embarrassment that, you know, I support a club that has Ed Woodward leading the ship and we can't even imagine the depths of despair that Arsenal fans must be feeling at the moment with how they've gone about things all season. So, and the issue, I don't really know how they fix it unless, you know, Aubameyang kind of looked up for it at the start of the City game, but then as soon as Xhaka went off, who I can't believe they didn't sell to Roma in the summer. Um, and then that back three, it reminds me of when uh, Harry Redknapp started a shocking midfield at the start of a season. And I think Spurs lost two or three nil. And then he forced Daniel Levy to buy Scott Parker. It reminded me a bit of that. Arteta kind of saying, look, look, look at the rubbish I have. I have to start them, fix it. Even though he's got Rob Holding for 50 million, he's now got, you know, kind of a, a right back, a right centre back, a right wing back uh, from Bologna. I'm not even going to pronounce his name because I'll get it wrong for 20 million. Um, so there are solutions there, but trying to understand how Arsenal, who now have the highest spend, you know, of anyone across Europe, really, are still going to integrate all these players that they've brought in 
while not really fixing the forward line either, um, it's going to be a real challenge. And I think it's too much for Arteta now. Um, and I, if I was Arsenal, as I said last week, I still think Antonio Conte is definitely the one you'd have mm-hmm. to be looking at to come in and, and just do something with a squad that's still actually on paper is still pretty strong and certainly is a squad that a seasoned manager would back themselves of getting something from. But Conte aside, everybody else has kind of been snapped up at this stage. So Arteta will probably get a bit more time, but it's it's been a pretty depressing watch all around. Hmm. I mean, the Ainsley Metal Niles thing took the biscuit all together. The fact that he had to go to social media to kind of try and push through a transfer um, and then reports that he has basically been begging to be played at fullback, yet Arsenal persists with Cedric um, at right back, and who has been a, an utter disaster. I mean, um, you'd wonder has this kind of has this gone back to Arteta at all, um, or what's he thinking with uh, with his selections? Um, any other business then from the Premier League lads? Um, Spurs go top of the one 0 win against Watford. It looks like they've been busy in the transfer window as well over the past couple of days, and crucially. Hold on to Harry Kane for at least another season. So things are learning, certainly looking a little bit brighter there for now. A late, late Southampton penalty denied Newcastle the win on Saturday. Rafa continues his fantastic start to the season with a 2-0 win at Brighton. The fan base quickly turning in favour of the big man there. Burnley and Leeds split out a one-up, one-draw and Burnley very much pushing the uh, the more lenient rules to the limit there with some of their play over the first couple of weeks. Paddy Vieira... Lads got his first couple of goals as Palace boss, thanks to Conor Gallagher. And Mikel Antonio continued his absolute monster start to the season. Um, some nice transfer additions for West Ham as well since since that game, particularly um, Kurt Zuma, which uh, may alleviate some of the pressure on the attack there for, for Moisey. Um, it was a 2015 throwback for Leicester, Albrighton and Vardy, earning all three points at Norwich. And finally, Brentford versus a slightly richer Brentford was one all Ivan Tony off the mark there for the first time this season. Anything catch your eye over the over those few games, lads? Um, I suppose like Everton continuing to be relatively impressive. Uh, Rafa getting a nice tune out of Mary Gray, and you know if he basically has three more good games, he's already repaid like that one point five million fee or whatever it was. Um, like unsurprisingly, as somebody who's banged the drum for Rafa for at various kind of rabble clubs like Arsenal and places like that for a little while. He's done what Rafa does. He comes in, he's made them very well organised and he plays to very obvious strengths without looking to do anything too wild or adventurous. Um, I don't know whether it'll be enough long-term for Everton who, uh, ob- who obviously sacked Sam Allardyce when he wasn't playing sexy enough football um, and and are going in and going in search of this kind of mythical football that you know will get them back to the top of the league like in 1985. But um, like it's it's been interesting to see how well he hit the ground. Uh, he does have this way with players we talked about before. He's kind of a cold fish, but he is a good motivator of players, and he's obviously an excellent tactician. Um, I'm kind of a perverse part of me is looking forward to when they have a bit of a rocky run, uh, and to see how the the old lady, as the Everton fans like to call Goodison, see how it reacts to him. Um, but like he's been very impressive so far. He's been very Rafa. And I think there's probably a few sides, again, not looking at any particular North London side who wears red and white in particular, who could have done with somebody like him uh, to come in and be a bit sensible and kind of steady a ship that maybe was listing a bit from side to side. Yeah, I think West Ham's still the interesting one for me. I mean, if if you were to look at the weakness in the lineup at the weekend, it probably would be 
Dawson beside Ogbana compared to the rest of the quality in the starting lineup. So they fixed that now with Zuma. It'll be interesting to see who makes way for Vlasic, who you know has had a phenomenal few seasons in in uh, Russia. I know some people might link him to a failed move at Everton at <laughs> the summer. They signed about six number tens, but he was I think he was only nineteen or twenty at that stage. So he's progressed really well. Um since playing in the Premier League last, and I think he, he'll be a definite starter for, for West Ham. But it'll just be interesting to see who of Bowen, Fornells and Ben Rama, who've all started very well, will be the one to miss out. So, you know, that's the challenge David Moyes will face. So dropping a couple of points at home to Patrick Vieira wouldn't signal great times ahead. But I think the signings they've brought in are really, really strong. And those are the probably the two positions that could really, really... Uh, improve them going forward if if those two start really really well especially Zuma beside Ogbana in the, in the back four with Cresswell and Sufal so I'm really looking forward to seeing how that works out Quickly lads on the Irish front I mean we're facing into a, a pretty big international break with Portugal on Wednesday night and then in, into Azerbaijan and Serbia I mean you would like to hope that we'll get maybe three or four points over the course of these three games although you know to face facts, it does look unlikely that we'll uh, we'll qualify at this point. So, I think a good performance against Portugal would be would be a fantastic start. But, um, I mean, on the transfer front today, it looks like Conor Howerhin is off to Sheffield United, which uh, is a nice move for him down to the Championship again, where I think he has excelled, um, and, and some of his best performances have come in there. Um, James Talbot was was an interesting one coming in as as third choice keeper, I suppose. Um, for the injured Mark Travers, um, I suppose a little bit of confusion over over the Darren Randolph situation, but reports then that uh, that he's been working on a, on a move away, although he he hasn't appeared on on Sky Sports so far today. So uh, not really sure what's happening there. But I mean, the the squad selection wasn't hugely um, eye popping. I mean, I was surprised to see Harry Arthur in there, uh, considering you know some of the form of Gavin Kilkenny. Um, apparently Jake Doyle Hayes has been fantastic for Hibs this season he hasn't been given a look in um, I mean it is going to be a fairly um, unimpressive team if you want to call it that against Portugal but be interesting to see what you think and, and what you'd like to see out of the game um, I imagine Ronaldo will be raring to go now that he's a, he's a United player again and and is going for the the all-time scoring record as well yeah, I, I think the squad thing was interesting because it's probably the first time under Kenny that there's been a squad and people expected a bit of freshening up and we didn't get it. Um, mm. Now, I mean, I, I say that and you look at what, you know, is it's not unreasonable to suggest that you could have Josh Cullen, Malumbi and Conor Horan in a midfield three against Portugal and two of those players weren't weren't really in the picture at all in the last regime. Horan obviously was. Um, so I suppose when, when we talk about like Harry Arthur and people like that being in the squad, we are still talking about a team that's undergone a pretty significant change. Like Pazun is probably going to play, Darrow Shea is probably going to play one or both of of Troy Parrott and Aaron Connolly could play Alameda. So I suppose there is, we have an awful lot of new players in the team still. Uh, and so I suppose my surprise at some of the kind of more standard inclusions is tempered a small bit by the fact that we have undergone this ridiculous rate of change and maybe i don't know like is is an experience head or two around the place the worst thing in the world i, I don't know and um, i suppose we're still dealing with the fact that i think kenny is keen to play someone like james mccarthy or at least include him but he hasn't 
had enough time on the pitch, as is the story of James McCarthy's entire career. Um, so th- there's probably a little element to that as well. Um, what we can expect from the Portuguese game, I think you're right, Ronaldo's going to be going bald-headed for that record. Um, they obviously weren't exactly inspiring at the Euros. Their campaign hasn't gotten off to the, to an absolutely firing start either. Um, they are still by far and away stronger than us. They could probably field a second team that would be the envy of our team. Um, you know, anything other than a defeat looks unrealistic. I, you know, they're not they're not free scoring, free wheeling this Portuguese side. So we mightn't get na- we mightn't get absolutely tanked, but we also probably won't see loads of the ball. Uh, like you said, three to four points is probably a target for this. And um, two home games is important because there's going to be two home games in front of crowds. The first time Stephen Kenny's going to have had that as Ireland manager. Um, Azerbaijan is going to be tricky, not least when you look at, at, at what trouble they gave Portugal. And Serbia is obviously going to be difficult, but I think it's really important that best foot is put forward in those two home games because Kenny has a chance to kind of make a first impression, you know, whatever it is, 14 games into his reign or 15 games into his reign. He's kind of making a first in-person impression. And if we could come away with four points in this window, I think it'd be relatively successful. It might even be enough to buy him another campaign. I think if we come away with something like one or zero points, all of a sudden he might be looking at not getting any further. Mm. Um, so I, I, you know, without wanting to be too extreme about it, um, Azerbaijan and Serbia are probably important. Not, I think I agree with you, Kev. I think our our chance of qualification disappeared over the horizon with the Luxembourg result, uh, slim and all as they were at the start. But I think for the next Euro campaign and for Kenny's future in the job, these two games at home, Azerbaijan and Serbia, could do a lot to dictate the direction of travel. Yeah, I'm starting to get a bit concerned, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> just because when you look at, you know, the players across the board who are tipped to start, Connolly, Ida, Horahan, Doherty, for example, they've not really kicked the ball this season for their clubs. Um, obviously, Horahan has moved now, so that will change. But um, I think it'll be a real test for Kenny. You know, Parrot did score a couple against Andorra. He has started the season very well for MK Dons. If he was to go for... Conley Ida up front, which most journalists seem to have predicted. I think that's a tough sell for people and the fans at the moment. I like both players and I think they'll both have big futures for Ireland, but you know, picking players who are in form for their clubs is such a, an important part of international football. Uh, and I think that's where we've really been struggling in the past kind of two to three years um, in the Ireland setup. And we've hoped that. Kenny coming in would be a bit braver than the previous managers and would would make big decisions. But, you know, he has it in terms of, obviously, we know he rates Ida hugely um, and he could be a very important player for Ireland going forward. But if you're not really getting any minutes for Norwich in the Premier League, it's very tough to justify starting him in matches for Ireland. Um, So, you know, I, I just agree with the overall sentiments, Phil, there. I think three or four points have to be the target here anything less would be you know a bit of a disaster for us but um i'm interested to see how we manage the portugal game this is a a team that you know has really lacked identity under santos in the past kind of 18 months he's tried a lot to fit in kind of bernardo fernandez um ronaldo joe felix it's not really worked they're very underwhelming in the summer so it could be the type of game to really suit ireland in front of a home crowd as well 
So I don't see Portugal rocking up in Dublin and putting five or six past us for sure. So um, it'll be a huge test for Kenny, but I, I think it's the type of opponent we need to see if he can handle at this stage of his, you know, international managerial career. Because I think these are the types of games in the past where Ireland have found a way to, you know, scrape a draw or even a win somehow. I mean, you know, you think back to some of the matches against the Netherlands, Germany, Portugal, for example, have been some of our best performances in the past two decades. Um, where a team of big names does come to Dublin, but kind of suit our style in terms of how we're going to match up against them. I think I feel I have that feeling with this Portugal team as well. So, you know, if we do get hammered, I do think there'll be a bit of judgment there on Kenny that perhaps there hasn't been in the past kind of 12 to 18 months. Um, so it's a really interesting, interesting international break ahead I think mm. in terms of where Kenny is trying to go with this Ireland squad Yeah and I'm missed to add that Jason Malumby has also been on the move he's gone to West Brom um, unknown for the season so hopefully he does break into the side there and do get some minutes because he's been craving minutes uh, at club level you know considering he's so fancied um, for for the national team and you can kind of see the reasons why he does need a run of club form um, I mean, just to take a couple of positives for for, for what they're worth going into was into the games. I mean, Bizzuno has, has has looked good for Portsmouth so far on loan. Um, I mean, Seamus Coleman uh, is in great form. Um, I'd be surprised if he doesn't start. Um, Nathan Collins is into the squad for the first time himself and Omar Bamidele both at Premier League clubs at the moment. So they are playing at a reasonably high level if they are not getting the minutes at the moment. But uh, uh, and Dara O'Shea as well knocking on the door of, of promotion again by the looks of it with, uh, with West Brom um, and obviously Shane Duffy um, refining his form at Brighton has been uh, a fantastic story um, over the past um, couple of games and you know you kind of have to admire his his renaissance there and, and, and long may it continue um, but yeah looking looking further up the field it does start to get a little bit more bare bone and obviously huh. Callum Robinson's um, uh, Covid situation isn't ideal um, mm. and I think out of everyone I, will, I would be Interested to see if we can begin to see some some Irish form out of Aaron Connolly, who I think, I think overall between club and country, he's been very disappointing for for various reasons. Um, some good news though on the Irish football front as a whole was the news earlier this week that um, equal pay has come in for the women's and men's team. I mean, the reaction has been brilliant. Um, the comments on both sides um, of of the teams between the, 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 the women's players and Seamus Coleman, who looked like he led from the front for the men's team, um, does show a huge sign of progress, you know, both for Irish football as a whole, but also for the FAI that, you know, we have turned a corner from uh, from previous um, regimes under there uh, with questionable financial decisions that it is all about the football now and, and, and trying to, you know, bring both the men's and the women's games forward in the, in, in the country. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's worth labouring on a little bit as well. Like, obviously, full credit to to Coleman and the men's squad for for making the records a cut. But um, the FAI is obviously still in deep financial trouble, um, and is is going to be for the foreseeable future. But is they're making what well, is a table stake now? It should happen, but it would be easier for an organisation in their position to kind of literally put on the poor mouth and say that it couldn't happen. But it, it does give you confidence in this new regime uh, that, that Jonathan Hill has been making the right noises and they are now taking the right actions in what they're doing. Uh, I suppose a big tribute uh, is due to the, the women's squad of four and a half years ago who who went on strike over over the conditions that they were in at the, un, under at the time, getting changed in public toilets, having to hand back their tracksuits at the end of uh, 
at the end of trips and things like that. And um, particularly uh, attached to that as it was led by Emma Byrne, a Leakslip woman. So it was always a, go- a good source of pride uh, at home that there was a that there was a Leakslip woman leading the charge there. But they they did this or they did what they did at the time for something like this, I suppose. Uh, and they did it not knowing if not knowing how it was going to be handled by a very different FAI regime. Um, so I think it, it probably is is worth uh, d- dwelling on them for a minute and kind of giving them their credit. But it is just a, a good news story for Irish football, and it's not something that we have loads of uh, with this game. At the you know, over the last kind of even stretching into five years, we haven't had loads of good news stories. This is unambiguously one of them. Uh, kind of follows in SSE taking up sponsorship of the Women's National League. First time that the two leagues have had the same sponsor, which is great. Um, whenever the FAI get a new main jersey sponsor, you'd assume it's going to be the men's and women's. So there is that parity that's finally been driven. Uh, more TV coverage for the women's uh, qualifiers. I think all their games are going to be on television this time, which is great as well. So it's all moving in the right direction, which is what it is what you want to see. Um, it's kind of following that trend that we've seen in, in England specifically and, and more more verily across Europe. But uh, great news coming into an international break and great to see players taking the lead in it as well. Yeah, well-deserved. Sky did an excellent ad today for the WSL. I don't know if you saw it, but, um, you know, good signs for the women's game going forward. And as Phil touched on, a huge uh, well done, I think, for Emma Byrne more than anybody who really led the charge four and a half years ago. Uh, against Delaney in particular, more than the FAI, over just woeful conditions. Um, and if you look at this, you know, some people obviously have made the argument, well, revenue, do they draw in as much revenue? Um, are the players as good? I mean, the women's <laughs> the women's team is ranked, I think, 13 or 14 players higher than the men's team. Yeah. You know, we've got one of the best players in the WSL and Katie McCabe, the captain of, uh, I think she's, is she vice captain of Arsenal? But anyway, she's captain of Ireland. You know, and, and looking further afield, Amber Barrett in Germany, Heather Payne in, in the USA. So, I mean, these are huge things for Irish women's football. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that affects things going forward as well in terms of, you know, players who are coming through. But I think that the women's game is, is in great shape going forward. And if there's if there's anybody who deserved equal pay across any teams in, in Europe, it's, it's, it's definitely the Irish women. Because, I mean, the, the strides they've made in the past four to five years and even hanging on to Vera Powell when it looked like she was only going to stick around for one campaign shows that there's a lot to work with and, and things are maybe are improving somehow behind the scenes, although it's impossible to trust the FEI at the moment. But, you know, I was really surprised Vera Powell stayed on when she did positively, of course. Um, so I think everything's moving in the right direction. And, and this is another example of that. And hopefully that can continue. And, you know, as we saw with the matches in Tala last year before COVID, I mean, sell out crowds, and that's the way it should be. Um, and hopefully that continues. First, I thought you treated the bollocks to be quite honest. Excuse me, <laughs> this is live. We're joined by Daniel Harris from the United Rewind podcast to take a look at the enormous and unexpected return of Cristiano Ronaldo to Old Trafford. Hope you're well, Daniel. Um, good, thanks. Hi, everyone. So come last Thursday evening and into Friday morning, I suppose, if uh, if you were tuned into Sky Sports News like I was, it looked very much like Ronaldo was on his way to becoming a Manchester City player. CR7 shirts were being burnt um, in Twitter <laughs> videos. I believe corners of, of United Twitter and Reddit were in, were in despair at the thoughts of a club legend lining out in Citizen Blue. And then all of a sudden, the deal is off. And within a few hours, he's a United player. So... 
um, over 10 years after departing the club for Real Madrid, that time for a, for a world record transfer. Daniel, what was your your range of thoughts, I suppose, over the course of that 24 or 48 hours when uh, when it looked like he was becoming a City player and then it, then it all turned in its head? Uh, I guess I wasn't pleased about him going to City because he's a good player. He was something approximating to what City need. And you don't want any real, any really any ex-United players going to City, not particularly ones that are good. But I always had reservations about Ronaldo coming back to United. And I mean, I still have them because ultimately some stuff is more important than football. And when you read everything about the Catherine Mioga uh, rape accusation, you can't obviously say, well, this happened, this definitely happened, and that definitely happened. But I have never once looked through the various articles that there are on the case, and I've done it more than once, and thought, ah, Ronaldo's okay here. Not once have I thought that. And so there's there's always going to be mixed feelings at that point when you're forced to deal with these kind of things as a football writer, as a football supporter, because you just want to think about the football. And as a football supporter, as a football fan, I can't wait to see how you know, how Ronaldo does for United. I'm pleased that he's gone to United. But it, there'll always be this thing mm. lurking, not even at the back of my mind, at the front of my mind. And we can't start giving our opinions really about what we think happened because obviously we can't be sure what happened. But the way that I would evaluate the information that is available, none of it looks great. And that's not going to change and it won't change however many yeah. goals Ronaldo scores. But if we want to talk about Ronaldo as a footballer, then I guess, yeah, we can have a separate conversation about that. Well, I guess on the the moral, um, the ethical side of it, I mean, it, as football fans, we are, um, we are faced with that on, on an all-too-regular basis. I mean, whether you're, you know, looking at the financial aspects of, of some clubs and how they're ran, um, with the ownership, um, you know, implications. We've seen it recently with Newcastle and their takeover. Um, from, I suppose, a player-specific point of view, you know, there's been so many examples over the years. I mean, more recently, it looks like we're facing into a, a situation with Benjamin Mendy and questions will be asked of City and in, in regards to what they knew of the situation and continue to play him. So, I mean, I, I, I've seen quotes from the Der Spiegel article today in relation to to the allegations that Ronaldo faces. I mean, it doesn't make for comfortable reading, but given that on your mind, like it, it does give all this kind of the celebration around his transfer a little, makes it a little bit more comfortable for me, especially, you know, seeing, for example, I mean, Sky Sports News tweeted a, a video about Carragher saying he's a model professional, which I mean, I'm sure from, from a training aspect and, and when it comes to matters on the field, he is um, but like you said, it is it is hard to quantify the two together. Well, that's the thing, isn't I mean, that's the thing with football. Football is its own worst enemy. Football is so brilliant that it will force us, compel us, incite us, encourage us to abandon the morals that we hold to in the rest of our lives. Um, I mean, if you, you, you mentioned Newcastle, and it's mm. the same with Manchester City. You have supporters of those clubs who are now going into bat against UEFA for the owners or the would-be owners of their clubs because why won't someone give the human rights abusing plutocrats a go? I mean, when will they get a fair shake, those lads? It's just unbelievable, isn't it? And so it's good football excuses lots of things. And I think that 
we see it with we see it. I mean, City is obviously the best example that they the people that own City know that they're sort of drawing attention to themselves by owning City, but they also know that they now have people who will trot out their propaganda and who will put their case for why they're acceptable. And they also know that if you think about it, there are 7 billion people roughly in the world. The way of speaking to the largest quantity of them is football. It crosses races, it crosses sexes, it crosses cultures, it crosses religion, it crosses absolutely every possible border football crosses. Not everyone loves football, but there is no corner of the world in which you will not find football. And I don't think that we can say that of anything, despite the increasing globalisation of society, despite the increasing homogenization of society, you're much more likely to find someone to, who doesn't know who Rihanna is, say, or to Tom Cruise is than you are to find someone who doesn't know Cristiano Ronaldo is. And the people that don't know who he is won't be focused in a particular part of the globe where you can just be like, well, football doesn't exist there. Football exists absolutely everywhere. And Abu Dhabi and Qatar realise that that is the case. Same with Roman Abramovich. Before Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea, no one knew who Roman Abramovich was. So if Roman Abramovich suddenly disappeared from view or disappeared from the planet, no one's going to care. But suddenly Roman Abramovich owns Chelsea, and everyone knows who Roman Abramovich is, and suddenly disappearing him becomes slightly more difficult activity because I know we're told the story about Roman Abramovich falling in love with football when he watched that Real Madrid and, Bar- and, um, and Man United game in 2003. But what the other things we know about Roman Abramovich suggest to us that Roman Abramovich had other priorities beyond the beauty of football but avoid and avoiding death when people like him like Boris Berezovsky and all the other lads when people like them often meet strange and untimely deaths Rona Abramovich realized that buying a football club would be a good way of making sure that didn't happen and that's why we see people riding on the back of football to redeem their reputations or to sports wash and that's also for the same reason why we read or see very little about some of the bad stuff that footballers do because there's nothing that can't be redeemed by a bit of decent ball. Exactly, yeah. And I suppose in, in Ronaldo's, Ronaldo's case, it seems like the bigger superstar you are, the more easier it is for kind of the wider media to stay quiet on that. Like, I mean, I would be interested to see if you do think, say, for example, I mean, Sky Sports' stance on the Super League at that time was vehemently against it um, they couldn't have been more outspoken against it but I mean watching Sky Sports News over the past couple of days there hasn't been a single mention of these allegations like, do you ever anticipate uh, a, a platform like Sky Sports even broaching this this issue? Uh, it's, it's kind of difficult because obviously they have to be quite careful about what they do and don't mm. say um, but Sky are interested in the circle of money continuing to go around as long as they are part of it. And um, the Super League obviously was a terrible idea and terrible in so many ways. And Sky ultimately were really important in turning that around. I mean, I can only speak for myself here, but I was on the Guardian's live blog that day, the day the story broke, and it was like a funeral. Um, But then I remember watching Monday Night Football with Neville and Carragher, and 
that for me felt like the moment the tide turned when mm. you've got people on television, powerful, well-known people speaking as strongly as they did. It felt to me like that was the moment that not that the fans wouldn't have done what they did, but it gave a focus to all the disparate aspects of complaining and protest and injustice that was that moment on Sky. And that was a great thing that that happened. But obviously Sky are a massive vested interest. And part of the point of the Super League was an attempt to cut them out of things so that uh, the clubs would be able to take the money. But yeah, what Sky want is they want this notion of good competitive football to perpetuate because that's what their business plan's about. If Sky lost the Premier League football... It wouldn't just be Sky Sports would be in trouble. It would be the whole business model of Sky that would be in trouble because so many people buy all their other services because they're in the process of buying the football anyway because what can you do if you like football other than have the football? Well, there are obviously other things you can do, but that... Oh, sorry, lads, someone is calling me. But... Sorry. Um, but the... Um, so the problem is obviously... In these, when you have these vested interests, no one's intention is ever pure. Um, so even when the even when people do the right thing, it's quite easy to dress it up as the wrong thing. But ultimately, we also need to be pleased when people do the right thing because doing the right thing for the wrong reasons is better than doing the wrong thing. And fighting against the wrong thing is also important. But in terms of Sky talking about Ronaldo and Catherine Mayorga, no, that's not something I think we'll ever see unless something happened that made it impossible. Yeah. United were touring the US, for example, and Ronaldo couldn't get in. But that just seems like that that'll happen. They just <laughs> won't do it. I mean, it does feel a little bit crude to to kind of segue away from 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 that kind of underlying issue with Ronaldo. But I mean, in terms of the transfer itself, I mean, I, I to begin with, I was pretty baffled at the transfer. I mean, to me, from a city perspective, it seemed to make sense. Like, did you have a pre- pressing issue? Uh, in the need for a, a goal-scoring striker, whereas United do seem better equipped um, across the front line, obviously with the addition of Sancho this summer, Cavani, Rashford, Greenwood has been off to a fantastic start. It looks like he was going to make that centre-forward position his own. But taking slightly away from, from the football for a second, I mean, if you're a, a kind of a global behemoth as, as Manchester United is, and when Cristiano Ronaldo is available, who is obviously still a global superstar in his own right, albeit a a 36-year-old one who has kind of more limitations, I suppose, now than he did five or six years ago. But, I mean, whether you're playing club politics with City or not, does it seem pretty hard to turn that opportunity down when it it kind of falls into your lap? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's for for all the chat about Ole and attacking football and purity of intentions and club traditions and all that, he is ultimately quite conservative. And turning down Cristiano Ronaldo is not would not be the behaviour of a conservative. Like it just doesn't fit. Like I think that he would consider that too big a risk to turn down that opportunity. Plus, like the suits of the club, there's no way that they can have the Super League and then Ronaldo going to City and those two things coming in the same summer and attempt to preserve any vestige of having learnt because Ronaldo's going to City for not a lot of money and it felt like as soon as United, if United had shown interest, even when he was going for City, you would have assumed he'd go to United because he would probably want to return there more than he would. Like City felt like a marriage convenience in that he's not really a Guardiola player. He wasn't City's first choice either. So he would have gone because he had to find somewhere to go and he obviously wants to win. 
But by going to United instead, he gets to preserve that feeling of identity that he probably gets from having played for United and he gets to go back to United and he probably feels more comfortable playing for Ole, a manager who you wonder if he'll have the force of personality to leave Ronaldo out or to take him off when you're chasing a goal, but creates a kind of nice environment that is welcoming to personalities like Ronaldo. Because I think that's quite a big difference between Ole and um, Guardiola and also between Fergie and Guardiola. I think the biggest criticism of Guardiola is that obviously he hasn't won a Champions League without maybe the greatest player of all time and the greatest midfield of all time. He's only got to one final. And I think one of the reasons for that is that if you compete in Champions League and you're playing against the best teams, then there will be moments when you have to hang in there. And Guardiola likes players who do what they're told, choir boys, who are capable of playing beautiful football, but are also capable of folding very quickly. We saw it when they managed to avoid winning the league against United that time, despite being 2 up at half-time. We saw it when they managed to concede, was it two, three goals in the first 10 minutes against Tottenham, when they conceded four goals over two legs against Spurs in that same tie, when they tossed that tie against Liverpool the season before, when they conceded three goals in the first 20 minutes or whatever it was. Um, So there's a kind of personality that Guardiola Guardiola likes and doesn't like. I mean, if you even think back to Barca, he got rid of Zlatan within a season. Um, And Ronaldo is not really that type of personality, whereas Ole wants the kind of personalities that he played with. He wants players who he's not going to tell everything to, who are going to take responsibility for themselves. And Ronaldo is that. Ole also was a centre-forward. He loves a centre-forward. And I think he might be slightly conflicted in this aspect because on the one hand, it's felt like he's trying to build a Rudy Ronaldo-Tevez forward line where you have three players that can play in all three of the attacking positions and can interchange. But then you got Cavani and all of a sudden you like thought, oh, centre forward. Gosh, like I like those. And so he's sort of torn between those two stalls of loving centre forwards, but also loving a really flexible forward line. And it looked like the next forward line was going to be uh, Sancho, Greenwood, Rashford. Those three players who can all play in all kinds of positions and between them, you feel that they ought to get enough goals. But then Ronaldo comes on the market and suddenly it's almost a no-brainer because... First of all, you've got the promise of goals. Ronaldo will score goals. He might hamper some of the other player of the team, but you can be sure he will score goals. And he'll play in the width of the posts, between the width of the posts. He has a big match temperament. And I think that players get lifted when new signings arrive. They don't like it when a summer goes and no one turns up. Like I'd already been told via one of the United players that they were buzzing about Sancho and Varane. But then all of a sudden, you're getting a genuine all-time great player, one the, definitely like one of the top three players of the time that I've been watching football, um, but one of the greatest players of all time as well. And suddenly you're going to be playing with him. That's not just a buzz, but it's going to be inspirational. Think about the feeling you get if you're a footballer from knowing that Ronaldo appreciates you, from knowing that Ronaldo rates you. And that just adds a whole n- other level of of feeling to playing football, of uh, incentive, and also intensifies the competition for places even further. So to borrow Arsene Wenger's phrase, footballistically speaking, I know there are people that look at it and think, what on earth are they playing at? But to me, it's basically a no-brainer to go and stick Ronaldo in with those players because there are just so many options that United have going forward. Now, how they're going to get the ball from that defence to that forward line that is a fair question. And 
I don't have a clue what the answer is. I don't think anyone does. But in terms of just looking at the team and saying, does this squad look better with Ronaldo or without Ronaldo? Anyone that thinks without Ronaldo, uh, I wouldn't listen to anything they had to say about anything. Daniel, we're kind of seeing the rewriting of Ronaldo's time at Juventus in terms of <laughs> you know, their success, the number of goals he scored, the fact that they weren't able to build that midfield behind him when you think of the squad that they had. Um, and even the, the back line was very mixed during his time there. And there were times where he was the only person delivering for them until really maybe Chiesa last season, Bernadeschi in the Atletico Madrid match in particular, um, linked up very well with him. But Juve really struggled as a team to deliver what Ronaldo needed. And yet he still scored over 100 goals in 133 matches, I think. In the situations like that, that United might find themselves in, do you think there will be times where Oli has the guts to rotate him with Cavani, maybe pull him for a Greenwood or a Fitter Rashford or, you know, shockingly, maybe even Anthony Martial at times? Yeah, or do you think it will be a situation where, you know, it's a former teammate, he still is a big name player. Pirlo didn't have the guts to substitute him, for example. Um, none of the Madrid managers did. It was all about Ronaldo. Do you think Solskjaer, considering Ronaldo's now a bit older, mightn't have the legs that he used to have? Um, even though he's still extremely fit. Um, do you think Solskjaer will have the guts to, to pull him when needed? I think he'll have the guts to leave him out because that's just a rotation thing. Do I think he'll have the guts to leave him out a huge game or to take him off with 10 to go and United need a goal? I'd be quite surprised. I mean, I said guts and it is partly a guts thing, but it's also a uh, balance of probabilities thing really, isn't it? That if you need a goal taking Ronaldo off doesn't always seem like a wise option. Um, I think and I, it actually reminded me, Ole reminds me a little bit of Gareth Southgate in some ways. In the, in the uh, Europa League final, Ole refused to make changes, even though United were getting nowhere near scoring a goal. Malcolm Marcus Rashford wasn't fit because Rashford was more or less his most reliable big game goal scorer. So he couldn't bring himself to take him off. In the same, re- the same way, we saw it in the um, in the uh, Euros final where England had got all these brilliant players on the bench, but Southgate just wouldn't take off Sterling or Kane because they were the guys who'd done it for him before. And so at that point, it sort of becomes pointless having a squad if you won't use it. So no, I, I don't think I don't think we'll see. I don't think we'll see Ronaldo get subbed if United need a goal or get left out of finals particularly. But I hope he's left out of some games, partly because I want to see more of Mason Greenwood at centre-forward. I always thought that this season would be the season, not necessarily where we find out if Mason Greenwood's going to be a centre-forward or not, but where we find out if United really need to go and bust all their money next summer on Erling Haaland, for example. But now it's hard to see... Greenwood getting that much time at centre-forward at all because the games that Ronaldo doesn't play, Cavani's going to play. And it's actually hard to see Cavani playing all that much because it seems unlikely that they're going to play one of Cavani and Ronaldo wide, even though they both have played in wide positions because you've got better, faster wide players. And so I think what we're ending up with now is that Ronaldo's going to play most of the games. And it's strange because over the last few months, and I don't just mean over the last three games, but the last six six to eight weeks of last season, Mason Greenwood more or less made himself undroppable. And it feels to me like he's that now. So let's assume for a second that he is. 
then you've pretty much got um, Martial, Cavani, uh, Rashford when he's fit, and Sancho competing for one spot, which is good for United in terms of one of the ways that rich clubs or clubs with big squads keep winning when they play badly is options on the bench. That was definitely how Fergie did it towards the end when City were basically sweep. Well, no one had money really. So City was sweeping up the best players in Europe, like Silva and um, Aguero and Toure for, with, without any competition because no one else was contesting them. And Fergie knew that he didn't have loads of money. So he basically totally ignored the midfield. I guess another, another part of Ole's tribute act and um, just harvested loads of centre forwards and wingers and then if things weren't going well, he'd have all sorts of options on the bench. So not only did he have fresh players to toss at tired defences, but also different kinds of players. And that is one of the ways you manage to force wins in games when you're not playing that well. So uh, that's a long-winded answer to the question. Do I think Ole will leave Ronaldo out? And the answer is no. You've referenced the midfield a few times already, so it would be... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, and um, the first three games of the season, particularly Southampton and Wolves away, which is are the games where United do uh, need to move it quickly through midfield in order to service that forward line. It is a very concerning setup at the moment, not just in terms of they don't really have the right personnel in terms of the three that Ollie wants to play, but there doesn't really seem to be any obvious solution in terms of how United are going to fix that issue for the rest of the season, barring something insane like giving Hannibal Mejri a go at some point. Um, it does look like it's going to be Fred with a mixture of probably McTominay, Pogba and Fernandez in that in that tree, depending on what the situation is. Um, it does feel like they're playing the long game a bit with Declan Rice in the same way they did with Jadon Sancho. Do you think he is the guy who they'll bring in next season? I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I know that Rice wants to come to United for sure. Um, and... I guess that could change if Chelsea decide they want him because I think he grew up a Chelsea fan and he's best mates with Mason Mount and probably wants to live in London. But assuming that doesn't happen, then, yeah, next summer I would expect that that will be the priority, someone to play in that midfield position. And personally, it's been my priority for this summer and the previous summer. But if you look at the players who United bought this summer, you can make a case for not sorting out the midfield. I think with McTominay rather than Fred, you'd see the midfield looking a lot better because assuming now, and it is an assumption, that with Ronaldo arriving, I'm assuming uh, that that is probably the end of Pogba playing left wing on a regular because if you've already got Ronaldo and Pogba playing on the left, then you're starting to talk about a very different way of playing because you don't have the same pace and dynamism as before. Whereas you might be able to have one of them, but both of them, and you're suddenly a lot more static than previously. And you don't have very much pace on the counter or someone who can kind of shift it as quickly. So let's assume that that happens. Then I would say that McTominay is a far better partner for, a, for mid, in midfield for Fernandez and Pogba than Fred, because what you really need, if those are your two midfield players, then you have to, then the person that plays behind them has to be a Fernandinho style player. Like they have to be mainly the over the overriding characteristic you need from them is a physical one. They need to be big. They need to be strong. They need to be quick because they're going to have to cover a lot of ground. Had United got rid of Pogba and signed someone, I mean, I know they were never going to sign Camavinga because he didn't want to come, but someone of that ilk. So someone who would play 
do a bit more defending, a bit more chasing with a bit more intensity than Pogba, then the player that you could bring in to play behind them, you could look for a passer. But if you look for a passer with with um, f- with Fernandez and Pogba, then you're probably going to spend a lot of time chasing the ball because those two, they're both high risk, high reward players, which means they can do amazing things. But it also means that they're going to be a, they're going to turn over possession a lot, so the opposition can have a lot of the ball, and they're also going to get kept upfield a lot. I'm hoping that with United's new defence, well, not new defence, but with Varane, they'll be able to play further up the pitch and Varane will be able to take more responsibility for building the play with Maguire. So that might help a little bit. But the thing, as you say, that was particularly troubling was the way that they tried to get the ball forward against Southampton and Wolves. Now, Wolves are a good team and they played really well. But when I looked at it beforehand, I thought, this will be a really good opportunity for United to establish that midfield because you're going to have a, they're going to have a man over because Wolves have only got two, Neves and Moutinho, and neither of those guys are, are runners, so they shouldn't. It shouldn't be a problem physically. And the fact that it was the size of the problem that it was, obviously, you can say, well, United just didn't pass the ball well, they didn't move the ball well, they didn't move it fast enough. They didn't, but it was still troubling to me that that happened and. You read all sorts of stuff on Twitter, people saying, ah, United aren't coach well enough to progress the ball. Look how they're not moving into space. Now, to me, in the first instance, that is not a coaching issue. Moving into space, making angles for the person in possession is such a fundamental, so basic, that when people don't do it, my first instinct, I don't know, would be to blame the players, not to blame the coaching staff. Um, and I'm sure that Michael Carrick, who has played in that position, like he must watch the game back and understand that if you stand on the touchline or if you stand with a cover shadow with a player blocking your route to the ball, you, then that is a problem. And so it seems unlikely. More, it seems to me more unlikely that the players aren't taking it on board than it hasn't been communicated. Which I guess still makes makes it a problem with coaching because the point of coaching is to be understood. But I'd also want to wait a little bit longer before saying that something is definitely going to be the case. Because although a lot of the problems with United in those two games have been problems we've seen with United sporadically over the last couple of seasons, I was hoping that once Varane and Sancho had settled, they'd make quite a significant difference to that because Varane will let them play higher up the pitch. So there's less distance that the ball has to travel to get up the pitch. Although, obviously, if it comes rolled out from the goalkeeper, that isn't the case. But otherwise, in general play. Plus... If you've got Sancho in the team, then he's not just a winger. He's also can operate as an auxiliary playmaker, someone who can come into midfield, get involved in the play. And so he was obviously had an absolute stinker on Sunday, Sancho, but that's not going to continue to be the case. So once the understanding of those players builds, then I would hope that United will be able to knock the ball about with much greater authority and much more quickly than they have done in those last couple of games. But when you're relying on Fred to do that, Fred is perhaps the most careless player in possession that I've ever seen play for United. And that isn't going to change. And although he is someone who is able to play well sometimes, he's absolutely miles off the stands. And I mean, I remember watching James Garner play for Forest last season in the Championship thinking, I bet Fred wouldn't play as well as consistently in the Championship as Garner had. And United playing him in the Premier League in the Champions League and expecting him to expecting him to affect games. So I think that I think that McTominay back will make a difference, and having him instead of Fred will make a difference. But 
yeah, I mean, we know that area is going to be a problem. I guess you could oh, you could show some imagination and try Lindelof in there, given he's not going to have much else to do. But that's not really Ole's style. And similarly, I could like Tuanzevi also can play that position, but he's on loan at Villa, so I wouldn't expect any kind of funky solution. But I doubt that any of the obvious solutions are, in fact, proper solutions. Yeah, just in terms of funky solutions, I suppose, and sticking on the midfield issue, and you, you mentioned Garner there. I mean, you look at the quality that United have coming through in that position um, at youth level, and Ollie's gotten a lot of credit, um, rightly or wrongly, and depending on which way you want to look at it, um, in how he's integrated younger players. But really, Greenwood aside, you know, Brandon Williams obviously had a better first season than he did second season, and, you know, hope he has a good spell at Norwich, but... He still, in my mind, has been a bit conservative considering the talent that has come through from the under-18s to the under-23s in the last two to three seasons. And I would have hoped that, you know, he would have taken a gamble, particularly on a Garner, but we've seen Ethan Laird play very well. Obviously, Medjubri looked excellent a couple of weeks ago, and I think you commented about that on Twitter, about what a great future he has ahead of him. Are you a bit surprised that he hasn't tried to be a bit more braver in general throughout his time at United in trying to fix that midfield position or even, you know, Angel Gomez, when he was at the club, for example, trying to be that playmaker that we saw at Bovista last season, instead playing Mata and Lingard in those positions. Has that surprised you a little bit? Um, a little bit. I mean, I think that once I saw what happened with Mason Greenwood, if you remember the year that Greenwood broke through um, in the second half of the season, in the first half of the season, United were without Rashford and Martial and they were absolutely desperate. I mean, they just couldn't score. And Greenwood looked like he was ready. And I mean, we saw in the second half of the season that he looked like he was ready. And I guess it's possible that that extra six months not doing very little was important to him. And Ole prioritised doing the right thing versus doing the thing that might have saved his job when it looked under threat. But other times it looks like he's wedded to what he perceives to be the right thing rather than doing the right thing according to what the circumstance demands. So not playing Sancho and not playing Varane immediately because the right thing is to ease the signings in. Now, I know that there are other reasons he said uh, Sancho was ill, but it sometimes feels like he's trying to do the kind of the textbook right thing rather than evaluating the circumstances. But it feels also at the same time, I feel a bit carping saying that because my knowledge of the circumstances is not as great as all the people on other people on Twitter or apart from me, of course, because I'm... I'm the right person on Twitter, but you know, you, you know what I mean? All the, everyone wants to see young players come through and I'm no different, but all the, but when you don't have intimate knowledge of a situation, you sometimes feel, I was about to say you sometimes feel an idiot gobbing off, but that isn't true. You sometimes feel an idiot after you have gobbed off about it, rather because obviously it's much harder to stop yourself than it is to feel regretful after you've done it. Um, but with Ghana, um, I don't. I, I saw him a couple of times for Forest, and it felt to me like he was someone you would want around the squad. But at the same time, another year at Forest is going to do him a lot of good. And the, and if Ole doesn't feel that he's ready and knows he needs someone in that position, which he surely must, then I think ultimately my inclination is to say, well, okay, you know this one better than me. I'm not sure what the plan is for for Hannibal, as you mentioned, because. I don't know whether he's ready, but we definitely do know that he's miles too good for under-23 football. Same with Alanga. And neither of them have gone on loan. And 
I wonder during pre-season, actually, when we didn't think Cavani was coming back and when we knew Rashford was injured and Martial was still injured, I wondered if Alanga actually might have got a start in the first game of the season, but then he got injured. Um, it seems like he's not going on loan. So when's he going to get games this season? And when's Hannibal going to get games? I don't imagine we'll see very much of either of them playing in the Premier League. Um, but, I mean, they both will be United players by the looks of things. And the number of homegrown players United are going to have over the next few seasons is... I mean, you're never, sure, you're never certain the player's going to make it. But Hannibal, Ilanga and um, Ethan Laird look almost certain. Garner is a wait and see, I think. Shola uh, Shoratire is also a wait and see. But I think that we will at a point see, but then someone's going to have to make some difficult decisions about who these people play instead of. But, I mean, maybe what will happen is Hannibal will get a League Cup game and he'll play really well and then we'll start to see more of him. But my suspicion is that we won't see very much of him at all. Daniel, just to finish off on a, a kind of a broader point, what... What would determine a successful season for United at this point? Um, I mean, I'm not sure if uh, Ronaldo brings them any closer to the league title, but he certainly brings them 20, 25 goals closer. Um, on the European front, I mean, they're in a group that they should be cruising. Um, it's it's one of those kind of tricky groups that if they don't do well, everyone will be quick to criticise them. But if they do cruise it, everyone will be like, yeah, you, you should have cruised it. Um, so I imagine they'll be targeting... Um, a run into the knockout stages there. What would you, uh, what would you like to look towards um, as a United fan going into the season? Um, I think United are sixteen to one for the Champions League, actually something like that, which look quite generous um, because they are capable of beating anyone. And I think one of the things about Ronaldo is that United miss a lot of easy chances, and more than that, if you think about United's goal scorers, Rashford, Greenwood, Martial, um, they tend to score bangers. They don't score a lot of headers and they don't score a lot of tap-ins. And there's like that's two whole huge genre of goal that they barely bother with at all. And I think Ronaldo is will, will address some of that. And he will he will take United closer to the league title in terms of quality, but in terms of whether they actually get anywhere near winning it, it just depends because the competition at the top now is so intense. I mean, you've got four teams, Liverpool, United, Chelsea City, that are look really good and look better than pretty much every team in Europe as well, apart from apart from Bayern Munich. You'd expect the cha- the winner of the Champions League could easily come out of um, could easily come out of one of those four clubs. Uh, and so I think that whether United, I don't think United will ultimately win the league this season, but a successful season, I guess, is prolonging a championship challenge well beyond January, winning some must-win games. Um, ideally some kind of trophy. But, I mean, if United end up finishing third and they're four points off the champions, that is obviously they'll have gone down from second to third, but they'll be a much better team. And I suppose by not signing that, that holding midfield player, or whatever you want to call it, they've still got that excuse that there is a hole in their first eleven. So... If they'd have signed Declan Rice, at this point you'd be saying there are no more excuses. The manager's been given everything that he could need. So barring injury, this is his team. Whereas the way you look at it now, he is only missing one player and you don't have to have the best player in every position. I totally agree with that. And perhaps there is a way of finagling the midfield to make it work. But at the same time, there is a little there is a little escape route. 
So I think what what you want to see, what I want to see as a whether as a United supporter or just someone who writes about football, is I want to see progression. I want to see them finding it easier to score against teams that want to defend. I want to see them winning some must-win games, and I want to see them finishing closer to the champions than they did last season, but having sustained the title challenge further. So it doesn't matter as much if they end up finishing within five points of the champions, but they do it by winning the last 10 games, having come from 20 points back or whatever. Like They need to, they need to be, prove themselves capable of forcing results at key moments and when under pressure as a matter of course. And we haven't quite seen that. Like Last season, what we saw happen was basically as soon as they got close to City, they ran out of form and fitness um, because they were able, where other teams were faltering because they didn't have the squads that United had, United were able to last a bit longer because they had more vet, more variety in attack, basically. And so they were able to swap more players than teams who were resorting to either massively overplaying kids or playing injured players or, or whatever. Um, United had a little bit more scope, but then I think Pogba got injured, didn't he? As soon as they got those couple of injuries, they had a few games that they needed to win and they stopped winning. Like the Sheffield United game sticks out as one, but there was there was another one or two around then at home. I can't remember who they were against, where the ability to find results escaped them as soon as the results really started to mean something. And we've seen that. And you can make excuses without even that much difficulty for the finals and the semi-finals that United have lost. Like, they, they played some of the best football United have played under Ole came in that semi-final. They lost to Sevilla, as it happens, and they just weren't able to score and then the defence let them down. So it's not simply a matter of turning up and playing well or not playing well. It's a combination of playing well and seizing moments. And I want to see an improvement in United's ability to do that over the course of the season. And it wouldn't be a successful season if United finished third, three points behind the leaders, but it would definitely show a major improvement that would probably be enough for Ole to keep his job. If they end up second by eight, eight, nine, ten points and don't win the thing, then you are starting to wonder if, although Ole's done a really terrific job, and I mean that, in taking United from where they were to where they were, where they are now, the club were absolutely on its arse, the squad was on its arse, and he's turned it around in a way that no other manager would have taken that United squad and finished higher than second last season. So I feel like Ole has 100% earned the right for this next for another season. But I would like the answers to the problems to be not just sign more good players, but it would be nice for him to... Now we know that United have this problem at number six. He needs to borrow another, to borrow another Arsene Wenger phase. He needs to find some internal solutions, him and the coaches. And I'd like to see some more of that than we've seen over the last couple of seasons too. I think we've seen a lot of individual improvement in players and people forget that when they're talking about how what a rubbish coach Ole is and has, despite never having seen him coach and also never having seen anyone coach and also not knowing bugger all about coaching. So I'd like, but I would like to see some improvements in the way that United move the ball forward. I think that is the main thing. Good stuff. Daniel, thanks a million for coming on tonight. Cheers for having me, lads. Bye, everyone. Respect. 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 Respect.
<laughs> so we leave it there so. Okie doke. Good night and God bless. <laughs>